coming up. If you live in this insulated place, it is all about the leader and what he wants and what he tells you to do. That, that, was the, that was the world Warren Jeffs created. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Yesterday, 12 News reporter Joe Dana introduced us to the Fundamentalist Church of Latter-day Saints. It's, it's a cult. And there are so many tragic stories of of children and families torn apart. Today, we're going to learn more about Warren Jeffs, the man who, for decades, has been the leader and voice of God to FLDS followers, even now from behind bars. Joe Dana, can you give us a little deeper introduction into Warren Jeffs? What is his story and how did he become involved with this group or, or this cult in the first place? So Warren Jeffs uh, was able to integrate himself into the hierarchy of the FLDS community because uh, of his father, Rulon Jeffs. And and Rulon Jeffs was actually seen as this sort of charismatic, um, gentler, happier uh, polygamous prophet. And people in the community would talk about Rulon Jeffs really in an endearing way. Uh, he, he oversaw the community there for 20-plus years. Of course, there was still abuse and manipulation going on because to make polygamy work in any community, you, ha- you start assigning younger and younger females uh, to men, and uh, many against their will. And um, there are many other psychological you know, uh, effects that come from that type of community. But Rulon Jeffs was still uh, largely celebrated by by many in the community. When he passed away in 2002, there was still a little bit of question about who would succeed him. And Warren Jeffs, he was a money guy, a finance guy. Uh, he had a background in accounting. And, you know, he, he wasn't real uh, charismatic. He didn't have the natural style that his father did. Uh, there were other brothers who were in that hierarchy that could have possibly um, risen to the top there. But Warren Jeffs uh, managed to sort of manipulate the system where he spent the final days with Rulon and ended up telling followers that it was revealed to him from his dad that he would be the next prophet. And apparently they believed him. They believed him. They believed him enough to uh, to call him the the prophet. And um, there were a couple of uh, monumental dates to follow. One was in 2004. He set up a, a meeting with the entire community, and they had this massive uh, church house in the center of town. And on January 10th, 2004... Everyone came together. They were dressed in their best to listen to Warren Jeffs. And that is when he gave this edict where he almost, it seemed, random, arbitrary. Uh, but he, in his eyes, he said the Lord had commanded him that there were men among them who were sinners. And that's when he purged from the town 
about 20 men, excommunicated them on the spot. And uh, these families were crying and wailing in this meeting, and they were ordered to immediately leave. And that's when he started to really clamp down on rules and policies and reassign children to other men who were considered more righteous, reassign wives. And then from there, just continue to become more and more maniacal, some would say, in the way he ruled. Uh, Just random things, like, for example, uh, uh, one day a a dog had attacked a boy in town. And um, this is a story that's been retold to me by three or four different people. Uh, That day, Warren Jeffs said he had a prophecy or a revelation that all the dogs in the community um, should be killed on the spot. And so he ordered the men to go and, and kill their pets that, that many of them had. And so no dogs were allowed. It was a city ordinance from that day forth. Um, he, he banned heart shapes. The shape of a heart was considered, uh, of the devil, was considered, uh, you know, uh, uh, of the wrong kind of persuasion. You know, everything should uh, lead to God and should be, be uh, have a, a divine kind of... Uh, Influence and so hearts were considered banned, uh, and then of course media and uh, movies and uh, you know were, were were not allowed. It was it was only church approved sermons from Warren Jeffs that people had to listen to. Uh, it, you know it, it would feel like North Korea in some ways, where if you live in this insulated place, it is all about the leader and what he wants and what he tells you to do. And they're extremely impoverished. Um, you know, they, they, they rely on their own food that they grow. Some of the men would, would go into St. George and, and have jobs, construction and carpentry. And so they were bringing in money in different ways, but for the most part, it was poor. And so even if you wanted to leave, you didn't have an education. You know, formal education wasn't a thing. Um, the boys, by the time they were 12, were, were unlikely to stay in high school, and they learned just farming and, and a very rural um, p- kind of pioneering way of life. That, that, was the, that was the world Warren Jeffs created. So it really sounds like, like Warren Jeffs, and I think you even brought this up on yesterday's episode, he's not only the religious leader, he's the leader. He's the religious leader, the political leader. And I've even read, and I, I don't remember, I know I've seen it in multiple places, but I can't can't cite one specifically right now, but I've read that that even was extended to elections where these people obviously lived in the United States, but it went against the teaching of the church to vote for the president of the United States. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Um, they, they were told how to vote, and they were told who should be in city council positions, who should be the mayor. Uh, and who they should vote for, you know, from the top of the ticket down to the bottom. And, uh, and it wasn't uncommon for uh, the school board or a mayor to uh, simply be replaced one day to the next by the church. Um, again, uh, you know, the separation of church and state went out the door. And it's crazy, it really is, to think that this happened in the United States of America for decades, uh, you know, that this was allowed to take place. But, 
you know, because of the Short Creek Raid, the famous raid that we mentioned yesterday in 1953, where law enforcement tried to go in and uh, enforce um, welfare fraud and, and, and whatnot, because of that disaster, uh, law enforcement had, to, had a hands-off approach for the next several decades. And, and, and so this community was largely left alone, the communities of Short Creek and Colorado City, which are two towns that basically are tied together. And so it's in 2006 then that maybe the most significant thing since that 1953 raid within the FLDS church anyway happens when Warren Jeffs is arrested. Tell me about his arrest and what it's actually meant for the FLDS church or the folks living in Short Creek. Yeah, so, you know, it had two effects. One, suddenly Jeffs was taken away from them and and that clearly shook up the day-to-day operations and um you know he was he was he was in a an SUV being driven by a couple of of his soldiers essentially uh on a highway i think in Nevada where where they were pulled over and he was discovered and arrested uh it shook up the community uh but then it also solidified the real loyalists even more to the cause because here was their prophet being persecuted. He became a a martyr figure. You know, he's now being arrested because, of course, um, they are God's chosen people and the outside world is out to uh, persecute them. So from behind bars, Warren Jeffs, in one sense, though, over the next couple of years, he sort of... uh, went into a, a collapse of his psyche. He, he was uh, described by guards and the psychologists as having just completely broken down and been uh, very depressed. And uh, he wouldn't eat and said some really bizarre, unusual things and suggesting he just wanted to die. It, it was all of a sudden a Warren Jeffs that, you know, no longer had the luxury of all these people at his command and um, could do what he wants. And, and he just completely folded as a, as a person and as a leader. He, he expressed several times, in fact, he tried to commit suicide while he was in jail, in prison, which is completely against uh, Warren Jeff's, you know, image that he tried to cultivate for so many years with his followers. And... Uh, he was pro- he was convicted for two counts of child abuse, uh, one involving him and a girl, and one involving the uh, coercion of a girl to be with another man. And of, co- of course, those were two solid cases out of dozens of other cases that probably could have been prosecuted, but these were the most solid that put him behind bars for life. And I know in the time since he's been in prison that there have been allegations that uh, sexual abuse, particularly sexual abuse of children, has continued on within the FLDS church, that this was not a Warren Jeffs problem. This was a problem within the broader cult. Yeah, so you have um, you have several men who are still considered uh, priesthood leaders carrying out Warren Jeffs' orders, and there are prosecutors in Utah specifically that I know are looking at 
ongoing allegations of abuse. Now, to what extent they've been successful or how close they are to uh, prosecuting other men, I couldn't tell you. I know that there have been three or four other men prosecuted over the years for, for financial crimes and welfare fraud. And in those prosecutions, you, you do see some evidence of, of abuse by other men as well. But so much of it, because of the way the culture is, is hearsay and difficult to pin down, and so many, so many women are still fearful of their life if they were to come forward and talk to authorities. Now, in sort of a twist of fate, Brielle Decker, who was once Warren Jeff's 65th wife, she owns the compound where Jeff's and a number of his wives used to live, and she's transformed it into a nonprofit called the Dream Center. And it really is so so beautiful to see this building that was for such a long time a source of darkness and of trauma now transformed into a refuge. Yeah, the Dream Center, um, we, from what we understand, um, you know, it's... It's, it's partially run by a, a Christian community that has other similar uh, facilities around the country. And so they partnered with Brielle. Brielle technically is the owner. I know that you, you had a couple hundred properties that have been turned over to different family members after uh, the church's trust that used to own all of this property was broken up. So after it was broken up, it's been divvied out. And so Brielle um, has uh, the largest complex there. This was Warren Jeff's room. You can see it has sound bar at the bottom of the door. He wanted it to be really quiet. The Dream Center has had some, you know, they, they, they've still tried to find what their niche is over time, um, but they've ho- they, they r- routinely host these uh, open community gatherings, barbecues, and I was there about three years ago, where you just had tons of kids that were there who uh, some of them were direct blood children of, you know, of Warren Jeffs. Others are nieces or nephews or, and, and they're all there and they're playing and, and, and socializing. And some of them are playing video games inside this dream center. Did you ever imagine a scene like this in Warren Jeffs' house? No. Um, I see this, um, this screen going on and all this music playing, and it'll just be like, whoa. What do you think of this house? Pretty good, I guess. It'd be fun to play hide and go seek in here. True. <laughs> it's like a scene that you would find anywhere, you know, in any little community at a high school or somewhere else, where it's just kids having fun being themselves. And it was so refreshing to see because, you know, just 10 years earlier, um, you know, those kids would be considered, and I remember asking Brielle, I said, what, you know, what, can, what position would these kids be in 10 years earlier? Or if Warren Jeffs was still in charge here physically, you know? And she said they, would, they wouldn't even consider themselves to be parts of, uh, of families. They would, be, they would see themselves as property. And they would see themselves as uh, just slaves to, to a system. So yesterday we talked about what it was like for you to go to this 
isolated community in 2001, 2002, you know, decades ago now. What has it been like to return there in in recent years and see it sort of opened up and, and transformed in the way you've been describing? You know what? If I, if I were to write a movie about um, the last 20 years of Colorado City, the one thing I would do is I would tell it through the eyes of this uh, county investigator. His name was Bob Angles, and he's the one who went in there in 2004, and he set up this little mobile home office, and it was his uh, his investigating station. It was his it, – it, it, he was planting a flag in the middle of this – uh, dark, ruthless empire, essentially, that had been built by Warren Jeffs. And he was saying, I'm here if anyone wants to come to me and talk. And he got death threats, and his life was hell, as far as I understand, for a year or two. But he went to that office every day. And 99% of the time, no one came through his door because everyone was scared. But eventually... He got a handwritten note of, of a girl saying, "My this happened to my sister. Uh, then he got an actual face-to-face meeting with another girl who said, this is what was proposed to me. I'm supposed to get married to this man, and he's 58, and I don't want to. And then he got a little more evidence here and a little more evidence there. And his bur- courage to, to go into this community and just be there, allowed for the first seeds to be planted uh, of justice that, you know, 10, 15 years later, after Warren Jeffs would finally be arrested and the prosecutions would be, uh, you know, put through court, would be able to flourish um, because of what he did. And I think about, you know, his courage and driving with him in his car in in 2003 or 4 when he was saying this is what we want to do and seeing these black SUVs following us from Warren Jeff's uh inner circle of these men who would uh surveil every move we made and every move he made and um what he was able to do which was essentially break open the the kingdom and expose the secrets and bring a new day, you know, to this community. And it started with him and it continues with really good people, um, social workers, uh, volunteers who are in the Dream Center there in Colorado City, helping kids and families. It's, there are attorneys who are still representing women, trying to get them reunited with their own biological children. Some who are in states they don't know yet where they're located because those children are living with a, a loyalist uh, Warren Jeffs follower. Um, it's, uh, it's some outsider um, donors who have contributed to try to give so get services to, to some of these people. Um, it's a shelter in St. George where some of the lost boys live and are able to um, have some support for each other. They were part of this group, the so-called 200 lost boys that had also been banished by Warren Jeffs because they were competition for the older men for wives. So a lot of different things are happening now to 
um, bring hope and light into this community. About three years ago, I interviewed Donya Jessup. She actually was elected mayor of Hilldale, the adjoining town there, I believe in 2016. She was the first woman elected to any office there and the first non-FLDS member elected to any office. And when you talk about signs of change, you know, she is it. Uh, She's a former FLDS member, so she understands the culture and the community and the challenges that they face. But uh, this is a woman who just, she is a fireball. She's very optimistic and positive moving forward. And she holds council meetings that are open to the public. She makes sure they're abiding by public records laws. You know, she's basically bringing the town back in line with uh, constitutional governing, which it had never seen before. And so uh, Danya Jessup is someone who is a real bright spot as, as this community goes through this transformation. Just a, an incredible transformation to see and, and we'll continue to follow it. Joe Dana with 12 News in Phoenix. Thank you for joining us today and, and yesterday to, to share the story with us. Thank you. Thank you. We'll, we'll probably be there again. The, the big story that I hope to continue to follow is reuniting some of these families that, that were reassigned that are still looking for each other. And um, that's, that's one of the stories that is still unresolved. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. We're here with new episodes five days each week, Monday through Friday. So make sure you hit the follow button on your podcast app so you don't miss any of those episodes. For more from us, you can check out a full list of our shows at vaultstudios.com or type in Vault Studios in the search bar on your podcast app. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond.